Well, good morning, guys. Thanks for joining us today at New City Church. I want to begin by sharing a couple of maybe hard-to-believe stories about inheritances. I don't know if you've ever wondered, like, man, it must be nice to just, like, to randomly, like, inherit, like, millions of dollars. You might hear these random stories about people that get this money, and you're like, man, what would I do if I got that? I was reading some stories this week. One was um, in 1988, 13 years before the Portuguese aristocrat Luis Carlos was going to die, he wrote up his will. And he actually left his considerable fortune to 70 strangers that he randomly chose out of a Lisbon phone directory. If you actually read this guy's life, it acts pretty sad. He had no family, no offspring. He inherited a lot of uh, money from his parents, and he didn't like the state. And so he didn't, when he died, he didn't want the state to get all of his money. So he randomly chose 70 people. Uh, there was an, a newspaper article in the Portugal Soul that wrote about this after he died, and these random people got all this money. One person said, I thought it was some sort of a cruel joke because I'd never heard of the man. But he literally randomly opened a phone book, chose 70 people, and they got lots and lots of money. Another one, two decades ago, this is, again, this is also a true story. There's a Chilean name, man by the, who was homeless and living on the streets of Santa Cruz, Bolivia. He fled police who were bringing him news of a $6 million inheritance. You see, 40 years earlier, Tomas Martinez and his wife had separated after only a few months of marriage. And so to escape persecution for writing some bad checks in his past, he fled to Bolivia, where he became an alcoholic and a drug addict, and he was known for begging on the streets of the town that he was living in. Meanwhile, his wife that he separated from continued to live a quiet life in Chile. Though they had been a middle, a middle upper class couple, she actually inherited a huge fortune before she dies. And then a couple of years later, she passed away. The two of them actually ne never legally divorced. And so Tomas was the rightful heir to all of her money. And so uh, eventually detectives were hired to find him. They tracked him to a bar that he often visited. Uh, one day the, the, the detectives get to the bar. Tomas realizes men were looking for him. And he thought that they were there to arrest him for the things that he had done decades before where he was from. So he disappeared without a trace, uh, causing the Bolivian newspapers to speak of him in 2000 as a millionaire, paradoxically not knowing his fortune. And to make it maybe from bad to worse, Tomas has never been found. Six million dollars, which 20 years ago was even more than it is today. And I share those stories because today we're going to look at this question as we continue our time in Genesis. How can we partake in God's inheritance? How can we partake in the inheritance of God if we didn't deserve it? If he's wholly different than us, what do we have to do? How should we uh, position ourselves to receive blessing, grace, and inheritance from the Lord? That's our question this morning. And we're going to look at this question by reading a story of an inheritance being passed from one generation to the next. And so if you have a Bible, uh, you can open up to Genesis chapter 47. If not, there's a black one uh, in the seat back in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. We are almost done uh, through the book of Genesis, where we have spent uh, most of this year. And, um, and so really excited about that. Today, we're picking up the story with Joseph and his family. Now, Joseph's family have come to live in the land of Egypt. Remember, Joseph is a high-ranking Egyptian official. He was the one that was overseeing the food distribution during the famine, and then during the year, or sorry, during the years of plenty, and then years of famine. And so we read stories to, last week of his brothers coming down twice to try to get food for their family back in Canaan. Long story so short, Joseph eventually reveals his identity to them. They're terrified because they sold him into slavery 20 years earlier. He says, essentially, you meant for evil. God used it for good to bring 
bring salvation to my family. And so now uh, Jacob is coming down to meet Joseph, who he thought was killed years ago because his sons told him he was killed, even though they actually sold him to slavery. It was just terrible stuff. And Joseph last week was testing his brothers. If you were with us last week, he was testing his brothers to see if they had changed from the men that they were 20 plus years ago when they sold uh, Joseph into slavery. So at this point, they're moved down into Egypt. They're in this land of Goshen, which is in the area of Egypt. We'll pick up the story. Chapter 47, verse 1, it says this. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. So again, they're living in the land of Egypt. Uh, we saw last week, or we talked about last week, and we'll see this week. There's going to be about 70-ish family members who are traveling to the land of Canaan, plus all of their possessions, plus all of their animals, and there was likely more people than just the 70 family members, other people who have joined the tribe over the years. So this is a very large group, particularly for the ancient world, that is coming into the land of Egypt, and they set up camp in this area called Goshen. So, so they come in. Once they get settled, uh, it tells us then, then five of Joseph's brothers, because he has, there's 12 of them total. He has 11 siblings. Uh, Joseph takes five of his brothers. He presents them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks them, what's their trade? Like, what do they do? He says that they say that they're shepherds and are here because the famine was too, too severe for them to survive in Canaan. And then they ask if they can settle in the area of Goshen where they currently are living. So they ask Pharaoh, can we actually permanently reside in this area? In chapter verse five, pick up verse five, it says this. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your, brother, your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. So Pharaoh allows this quite large family to live in the land of Egypt. Uh, again, he's doing this in response to how uh, J Joseph has really prospered the land of Egypt during a, a quite uh, large famine. He then asked them to help oversee his livestock, which is a really good gig. If you're a foreigner in a new country and you're actually given like a job. Now, we know historically the Egyptians had a, especially high-ranking Egyptians, had a very low view of shepherds. But of course, we're in the land of Canaan where Joseph's family was from. That's how you survive. There's a lot of shepherds, a lot of livestock. And so they're really, really well equipped for this job. And they get a really good job for a foreigner in the land of Egypt. Verse 7, it says this, Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, again, Jacob is Joseph's father, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So then you have Joseph's father comes in. He, Joseph presents his father to Pharaoh, who is the leader of Joseph's family. He's the patriarch. He says how old he is, which was really impressive. And again, in the ancient world, you would assume, oh, the gods or your God, Jacob's God, has brought him favor to his life, that he's given him such an old age. Yet even uh, Jacob here, he says, is actually short, at least compared to Abraham and Isaac. Like he doesn't, he's not going to live as long as they have. And he's faced a lot of hardships in his life. That Jacob and Israel is the same guy, uh, is now in the land and now has a place to 
live. So they're settled into the land. Uh, much of the rest of chapter 47 explains how harsh the famine was in Egypt and how the Egyptians began to buy food from the storehouses that the, that the Egyptian leaders had stored for the previous five years of the plenty. Now they're out of food, they're out of everything. So they're buying back their own grain. And it was so bad that many of the Egyptians who actually owned land had to sell their land in order to pay for the food that they could actually eat. So they go from working their own land to eventually, essentially in some ways, becoming like indentured servants on their own land that they sold to the high-ranking Egyptian ruling class that could afford it. They're working their land, but they had to do it just so they could survive. And then, and then so what you see then is therefore that Pharaoh and the ruling class is even becoming more, more wealthy because the great majority of everyone else is just trying to survive and they're selling everything they have to keep food, to keep eating. And so you contrast this very dire position for the Egyptians to what it then says in verse 27. So chapter 47, verse 27, look down, it says this. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. In other words, in stark contrast to many of the Egyptians who are from Egypt and lived in Egypt, who sold their own land back to Pharaoh and to others just to buy food, to work the land they no longer own themselves, yet the Israelites appear to settle in and start acquiring land of their own. Now, the question is, how does this happen? Certainly, we're meant to see that God is blessing his chosen people. Also, I think what, what's helpful for them is that many of them are their shepherds, their herdsmen, and so their trade is a little bit different. They might not be as dependent on the land as most of the Egyptians are, and so they have animals that they can sell, they can trade, and yet somehow, some way, they start to, we're going to see, especially if you read Exodus, the beginning of Exodus, they increase in number. They have all this land. You can see why they become threatening to many of the native Egyptians. And then verse 28, it says this, Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said, being Joseph. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. So eventually what we're going to read here is the coming death of Jacob. Joseph's dad, again, the patriarch of the family. What you actually see if you look, if you're attention to how these years break down. Uh, for the first 17 years of Joseph's life, he was under the care of his father before his brother sold him into slavery. And now for the last 17 years of Jacob's life, he is under the care of Joseph. And so he gives Joseph the responsibility of handling his burial, which of course is a solemn responsibility even today, but it was even a bigger deal in the ancient world, especially because many people in the ancient world believed, certainly the Egyptians did, but they are bombing, that your experience in the afterlife depended on how your body was cared for when you died. Now, we're not saying that Jacob believed this or the Israelites believed this, but this is the culture you're from. And it's, just, it's a big deal what you do with the body. Again, there's no cremation. Again, in the ancient world, you lived, died within like 15 miles your entire life. And so you, you were a people of a place. And so you stayed there. Your ancestors were buried there. It's not like today where we're very mobile. And like, honestly, probably most of us don't know where our grandparents, if not our great-grandparents, are even buried 
if they're buried at all. And we don't, but for the ancient world, it was a big deal. Now, typically, this responsibility was given to the eldest of the family, the firstborn son, who is going to be, who's going to transition into the new leader of the family. Uh, but that Jacob asked Joseph for this shows that he's giving Joseph the responsibility of leading his family once he passes. And of course, if you've been with us, we've talked through some of the issues some of his other brothers have had. And he tells Joseph he wants to be buried back in the land of Canaan with his wife, Leah, with his parents, with his grandparents. He wants to be buried back in the land where he was from. Chapter 48, verse 1, it then says this. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, so Joseph's first two born sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. So, so Jacob's dying. He's coming to the end of his life. Joseph is summoned. So he travels from wherever he is to the land of Goshen. This is going to be the end. Now for context, what we're about to read here, Joseph's sons at this point would be around 20 years of age. So Joseph's sons are men in their own right. And then this happens, verse three of chapter 48. Jacob said to Joseph, God almighty appeared, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me. And he said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. So Jacob starts to give this speech to Joseph and Joseph's sons. Now, most often what we see here is not the entirety of the conversation. It's typically just like the highlights or the main points. And so jo Jacob begins to count, recount for Joseph and Joseph's sons what God has done for him in his life. Beginning, if you were with us, in Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob was on the run for his life from his brother Esau, who was trying to kill him because Jacob had swindled him multiple times. So he's on the run for his life. He's also trying to find a wife. And God appears to him out of his grace in the land of Luz. He didn't ask for it. He didn't do anything to deserve it. God appears to him. God gives him all these blessings and all these promises. And then Jacob responds by basically saying, well, if and only if you do all these things, then I'll trust you. Like even his response was not at all what you might want, but yet God was faithful to him. And that God promised him, even in Genesis 28, that God would one day give his descendants the land of Canaan for his future descendants to possess. And so Jacob essentially wants his family to know who God is and how God saved and rescued him, what God has done. And so as we're talking about the inheritance of God, how we partake and receive it, one of the things that this text shows us is that God's inheritance is for those who don't deserve it. God's inheritance is for those who don't deserve it. You can put the point on the screen. So this is where like, again, he's like my own life. Like I didn't do anything. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. But God was kind and faithful to me. And at this point in Genesis, um, you're, it's not surprising to hear this, but Jacob wants them to know what God has done for him. If you've been with us, we've seen time and time and time again, God's faithfulness in the story of Genesis, that he calls Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, and all of them have blown it. And all of Joseph's brothers that we were told stories of, they've all blown it. And yet God was kind and faithful to them, right? The point here is that we shouldn't get it. Jacob should not have gotten God's blessing and inheritance. Oh, we shouldn't get the grace and mercy of God. And therefore we're not going to get it because we're awesome. So whatever it takes, however we can position ourselves to receive the inheritance of God, it's not because we're great, awesome, and promised to do really good things. It has to be through another way. Even Jacob's blessing in his life was not something he deserved, but God graciously gave it to him. Verse 5, he then continues by saying this in chapter 48. 
Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned to me as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. So what's happening here is that Jacob is essentially adopting Joseph's first two sons as his own sons. And notice too that he switches the order. So Ephraim was the second born, but he mentions Ephraim first here. Manasseh is the first born. He reaches him second here. In other words, this is going to be yet another example that we've seen all throughout Genesis of the person you, not, you don't expect, the second born, not the first born, receiving the blessing. What he's telling Joseph is that his first two sons are essentially going to become his sons. In effect, that Joseph's sons are now his sons, his own sons, and they are going to be like Reuben and Simeon. So Reuben and Simeon were Jacob's first two sons. They've done some bad stuff and really have kind of disqualified themselves from the inheritance. And so these are going to be like my first two sons. And they, as we will see, are going to receive the, portion, the double portions that should have been allotted to Reuben and Simeon in the inheritance. So instead of going to Reuben, it's going to be allotted to Ephraim and Manasseh. The double portion that goes to the firstborn is now going to be given through Joseph to his first two sons that are now essentially the first two sons for Jacob. Then it says this in verse 6, any children, Jacob speaking to Joseph here, any children born to you after them will be yours. And the territory, territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. In other words, any future children Joseph has or has had at this point will be recorded as Joseph's kids. And their inheritance will be from Joseph and not Jacob himself. And don't forget too, when Jacob is adopting Joseph's first two sons, remember that these sons are half Egyptian. They're half Egyptian. Joseph married an Egyptian woman because he was in Egypt and he was uh, ascended to this place of authority after being taken out of prison. And yet you have these two uh, half non-Israelite kids being adopted into the two tribes of Israel, of which the 12 tribes of Israel, two of them are going to be from these kids in the land of Canaan. And again, this is for us just another foreshadowing of the gospel, that God has one son in the name of Jesus, who is wholly like him. Jesus is divine. He is God. We are not. And yet through Jesus, he adopts in a people unlike him. Joseph has sons that Jacob adopts who are unlike him into his family. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, we are strangers to the promises of God, but are brought near, not because we deserved it or did something awesome, but because of Christ. In other words, what we see this text pointing us to is this, that our inheritance is given. It is not earned. If it's not something that we can deserve or get on our own, therefore it must be given. It cannot be earned on our own behalf. This is Manasseh and Ephraim. They're not actually Jacob's sons, but yet they're going to be counted and allotted into the 12 tribes of Israel. They did nothing to deserve it, but it was simply out of Jacob inviting them in to be a part of his family. That our inheritance is given, not earned. Ephraim and Manasseh did nothing to earn this, and yet he is going to give it to them. It reminds us of what the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter in the New Testament. It says this, it'll be on the screen, but you, he's talking to Christians here, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, that is God's possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of, his dar out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, our inheritance is given, not earned. God chose to reconcile you. God chose to invite you 
in. It makes me think of, I'm sure there's stories, all stories, all of us have stories in our life where we were given something that we didn't deserve. Like we, we didn't do anything, but, but because of a, maybe a relationship or something, we found like we got something we didn't do anything to earn. I have a funny story, not this past October, but last year we were at the state fair and Christina and I, and we have a college friend that we go with every year. And so we're at the state fair and we're in one of the places where it's like inside. I think it's where they have like the, the giant, all the giant vegetables that win all the awards and everything. And they've got like cows and stuff. And there's like this little mini like, I don't know, not barn, but like the chicken coop. And it's got, all it has is baby chickens. Like it's just baby chickens. And so we're staring at these baby chickens and all of a sudden uh, our friend looks down and sees a wad of money on the ground. And so we do what, what everyone should do. We pick it up. We pick it up and it's $60. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, 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 the, that's a uh, state fair buffet right there. I mean, that's calories, baby. Come on. We got some, uh, we got some fried Oreos, street corn, Anything, can I get amen from anybody, okay? I mean, it's like, so, we're, so me and my friend Caleb were like, yes. And Christina, who's like, you know, the actual Christian among us, she's like, we should find out whose money this is. And so she has the idea, she says, let's give it to one of the workers. And I'm like, if, you know, if we give it to one of the workers, that's called a tip. I mean, they ain't gonna find, like, there's, there's not going anywhere. So we did the right, we stood there for like five minutes just to see if anyone was looking around and nobody came. And then we ate, okay? <laughs> then we ate. So we did nothing to deserve it, but it was like God was blessed. So we just took it. Obviously, He wanted us to have it, right? It was, it, we did not earn it, but we received it gladly. At least I did. That's what was happening here. Our inheritance is given, it is not earned. God gives it to us, even though we don't do anything to deserve it. In fact, we might do the opposite, we don't deserve it. And so what happens next in the story, if you were to continue to read in Genesis 48, is that essentially Jacob then continues to talk to Joseph about this adoption. He explains that since Rachel's life was cut short after Benjamin was born, so Benjamin is the youngest son, Joseph is the 11th of the 12 sons, and, and, and Benjamin is his only full brother. Everything else is his half-brother. Rachel, his mother, died in childbirth to Benjamin. So Jacob could not have any more kids through her. And so he says since he lost Rachel during his wandering years through in, in the land of Canaan before they settled in a specific area. And that Joseph, since Joseph had these two sons during Jacob's wandering years, that they will be included into Jacob's inheritance. And then he continues on and he blesses both sons. And Joseph starts to, uh, to protest because he, he crosses his arms. And again, he blesses Ephraim first, even though he's the younger, younger one. And so Joseph thinks his dad's like getting it wrong. And, jo and his dad's like, no, 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 this is the way I'm meant. I'm doing this intentionally. He says that Ephraim will be, uh, will be blessed as the firstborn. He says that Manasseh too will also have a tribe, but his younger brother Ephraim will be greater than he and his offspring will be more numerous. And then he blesses both children. Now, as a side note, you might be confused. Um, if you ever like look at the 12 tribes of, 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 of Israel in the, land of, uh, in the land of Canaan, you might be a little confused. So basically you have 12 sons, right? But then you have Ephraim and Manasseh that are included. So that gives you the 14. So how are there only 12 tribes that possess land? So you have 14 if you include these two kids. Uh, Levi, who is the father of the Levites, that was the priestly clan of Israel. Now the priestly clan of Israel did not, inherit, did not possess any land for themselves because they served everybody else. So that puts you down to 13 tribes that possess land. And then Joseph also does not, his, his, I mean his offspring does, but he, his family line, or his name I should say, doesn't possess any land either. You get Manasseh and Ephraim in his place. And so that's how you get from the 14, if you include his two sons, how you actually get 12 clans who possess land. The Levites possess no land. And Joseph is represented through Manasseh and Ephraim. 
So there's 12 tribes eventually that are going to own land in the land of Egypt. So he blesses his two sons. And then chapter 49, starting in verse 1, it says this. Then Jacob called for his sons, so all of his kids. Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. In other words, Jacob here is about to die. And so here he is giving his patriarchal blessing and pronouncement to his kids. We've already read a couple of these in Genesis. It was an ancient right ritual when the, the father, the leader of the family legally and all these things is coming to his deathbed. He'll begin to give pronouncements and blessings over his kids. It's, it's worth knowing that these, even in Genesis, are not necessarily presented as given from God. But however, what would often happen is that these pronouncements were kind of taken as fact. It's kind of like today, like if you're a kid and your parents believe in you and trust in you, you start, you start to believe things about yourself. Or if you have parents or a coach who's demeaning you and tells you you'll never amount to anything, that really affects your attitude and the things that you pursue. So it's kind of the same thing here. It's like, well, if our dad says what's going to happen, they kind of believe and kind of set these things into motion. So, so 49, he's giving pronouncements to all of his sons. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to give you a quick overview. He, he starts with Reuben, who's his firstborn, and his pronouncement ain't great. It is not good. He says that his firstborn rights and privileges are forfeited, and they're forfeited because what he did to Bilal, Rachel, after Rachel died. So Rachel had a maidservant, Bilal, uh, and so after she died, uh, uh, sorry, Reuben, in an act of like sexual dominance, sleeps with Rachel's maidservant to kind of say, I'm taking over the family. Of course, it doesn't work, and so he loses out on his inheritance. In fact, uh, we, if you continue down the line of, of Israel, what happens, there is not a single prophet, priest, or king who ever comes from his tribe. And of course, the double portion of, an, of his inheritance is going to go to Joseph and through, through Joseph to Joseph's first two sons. Then you get Simeon and Levi, who he mentions together. Um, if you remember earlier in Genesis, Simeon and Levi laid raid to a place called Shechem and murdered all the men that were there. And so he says that they will be divided and scattered. They also are losing their rights out as the firstborn son because of what they have done. And so you see that the Levites don't end up inheriting any land, as they again are the priestly class for all the tribes. And Simeon has land. So you have Simeon, the thirdborn, or sorry, the secondborn. He has land, but it's essentially, it's a lot to map out, so I won't. But like, if you read the history of Israel, it's a, their land is like within the land of Judah. And eventually it kind of like goes, kind of like uh, assimilates into the land of Judah. So they get a little land, but it eventually kind of goes away. His point is that neither Simeon or Levi will be in positions of power, and they won't. Uh, and then Judah, the fourthborn, he's described as a lion. He says that he will rule his brothers and his brothers will praise him. His pronouncement is longer than anyone else other than Joseph. And of course, he says, kings will come from you. And eventually our Messiah, Jesus, comes from the land of Judah. He essentially becomes kind of like the leader of the family other than Joseph because the first three brothers have disqualified themselves. And so you can, you can read all these. Some of these people get better pronouncements than others, but everybody gets spoken to. Uh, Jacob says the most about Joseph and how Joseph is a blessing to others and to his ancestors because he literally saved his family from the famine and that he will be remembered as the son who saves. So he gives these pronouncements and then verse 33, the end of the chapter, here's how it ends. It says, when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. In other words, Jacob, Israel, has died. Now, Genesis, what's interesting is that Genesis shares with us stories of the oldest four brothers of Joseph and how they all made awful decisions. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and Judah. I'm sure if we had heard stories of all the sons, we probably would have gotten bad reports from all of them. 
Joseph is the only example ever since Abraham who has actually been faithful to his God, who's lived with character and integrity. From Abraham onward, every generation has done things that should have disqualified them from God's blessing. And in the end, it was the faithfulness of Joseph through God's providence that the entire family is saved, right? The faithfulness of one man ends up rescuing the many. And all these stories that we read in the life of Joseph, if you've been with us the last few weeks as we kind of draw on some of these out, they are foreshadowing of what God would accomplish for us in Christ. That we need a true and better Joseph who can do for us what Joseph did, not just for his own family, but for the entire family of God, for the entire world that might receive redemption and grace. And that's what Jesus came to do. You know, when you receive an inheritance, what an inheritance is, I mean, literally, I guess, I don't know if it's by definition, but like by default, is that you are receiving something you didn't work for, right? An inheritance is something somebody else, your parents or some rich person in France found you in a phone book, right? Somebody else has acquired, has done, has worked. They pass away. They pass along something to you that you could not have gotten on your own. And I think that it is envy for us to be envious of inheritance stories, whether from a friend who like got a lot of money from their friend, from their parents passing away or kind of the stories that we read in the beginning and you, these random people you know, receive large sums of money. You know what we think? Must be nice, right? Sure, worse God would do that to me. And so here, look, if you've ever wished that, if you've ever wished that God would do that for you, I've got good news for you, okay? Ephesians chapter one, last thing we'll read, it'll be on the screen. It says this, the apostle Paul writes this. In him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches, in other words, the overflowing abundance of his grace, that he's got a lot to give out, that he richly poured out all of, on, on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ. And this was God the Father's plan. Verse 10, as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. And then verse 11, in him, in Jesus, we have also received an inheritance. Because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might be praised to his glory. So again, the question for us is how can we partake in the inheritance or in God's inheritance? What do we do? How do we position ourselves to receive it? Well, here's what we see. Here's what the story in Genesis is pointing us to. That our inheritance is given through Christ. And it is only given through Christ. It is not given by trying harder or following our particular ideology or voting for a particular candidate. It is only given through him. In Genesis, it's just over and over and over again, people receiving mercy who don't receive it. I mean, that's, that's what the story of Genesis is. And sometimes, like even Jacob in Genesis 28, didn't even ask for it. Didn't even ask for it. Yet he gives it. And so this story is pointing us to our need for the one who will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, right? The story of Joseph also points us to the one who gives us our inheritance. And listen, we shared particular stories in Joseph's life 
and how there are many parallels in the New Testament and in the Gospels of how Jesus does these things, but even to a greater extent. That in God's sovereignty, he's laying the tracks for what God, what he would do in Christ through Joseph's life. So real quickly, I just want to tell, I want to share with you some of the main things we see in Joseph's life. And you can ask yourself, who else does this sound like? So in the story of Joseph, we see that he is the object of his father's special love. We see that he had promises of divine exaltation. We see that he was mocked by his family. We see that he was sold for pieces of silver. That he was stripped of his robe. That he was delivered up to the Gentiles, those who did not fear God. We see that Joseph was falsely accused. We see that Joseph was faithful amid temptation, that he was thrown into prison, that he, was, that he stood before rulers, that his power was actually acknowledged by those in authority, that he saves his rebellious brothers from death when they actually realize who he is, that he is exalted after and through his humiliation. It was his humiliation that was really his crowning achievement, that he embraces God's purposes even though it brings him intense physical harm, that he is the instrument God uses at the hand of the Gentiles to bless his people, that he welcomes Gentiles, in other words, non-Israelites, into to be a part of God's family, that he gives hungry people bread, and that finally people will bow their knee before him. Right? Our inheritance is given through Christ. That's what we see that God would look through the phone book of creation and he would say that I want you. And so when the New Testament authors, when they talk about this idea of being chosen, a, a royal race, predestined, that, that, to me it's a beautiful picture. That's not like, hey, you just woke up one day and were like, you know what? I think I'm gonna give this God thing a try. Or here, maybe that's what you thought was happening. And what was actually happening is that God's spirit was moving and convicting and using circumstances in your life and people in your life to draw you to himself because that, he says, that daughter, that son, I want them. I want them. He wants you. And so today we're going to celebrate communion where Jesus is showing us his giving of his life so that we might celebrate and remember his grace in our life. It is a reminder that he chooses us, not because we're awesome, but because he is.